Well, um, I've heard Advent's been a tradition of the church for a while. And so we have a great family who's going to read us the scriptures and light two candles today. And uh, Advent just means uh, the arrival of anything. Now, you could say I'm waiting for the advent of my new iPhone, okay, or the advent of my Christmas present, okay, the arrival. But it's really a noun, uh, really a verb, sorry, uh, that the advent, no, a noun, uh, that's saved for something very important. Okay, so we don't use it for our common day language, but we use it in remembering Jesus' first coming and anticipation of his second coming and then how we live in between. And so we're going to read those scriptures today, and then this wonderful family is going to light a couple candles. Isaiah 43 through 5. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, um, while we just uh, sing that song about your first coming, Lord, and now we anticipate your second coming, that you will flood the world with peace, and there'll be no more war. And thank you that... You have made the highways low and the low ways level and the rough places smooth for the coming of the Lord into our lives, into lives of uh, those that don't know you. And Lord, I pray for this town and the vicinity around it, Lord, this whole area that this Christmas many would find you, that they would understand your love, that they would uh, come to you and have your, their wounds bound and their weaknesses loved by you, Lord, and made strong. And I think of the scripture, Jesus, where you said that the uh, Spirit of the Lord will not blow out or extinguish a smoldering flame, or it will not break a bruised reed. But, Lord, you come to fan to life that which may only be flickering within us, that we may find fullness of life in you. And Lord, if we're bruised to the point of almost being broken, that you come to bind up the brokenhearted and to heal. And that by the stripes you took upon the cross, we find our health in you, Jesus. And I pray that um, so many in this Cody area would just uh, come to know that, that you would reveal it, that you would hound them, Lord, with your spirit and bring them into relationship for you love them so much. And thank you for bringing us into relationship and binding our wounds and fanning to flame the life within us. We love you, Lord, and we do rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So all morning that scripture has been on my mind that he says he will not blow out or extinguish a uh, a full smoldering flame or, or a break a bruised reed. He's so gentle. He comes to heal and restore and redeem, not to um, break and, and harm our Lord Jesus. Well, I trust you had a good Thanksgiving and uh, awesome and uh, wish we could have been with you here at your service, but we were uh, spending time with family, which was really awesome for us. And we uh, just are great to be down here today and so thankful that 
the weather report that was supposed to happen. It was supposed to be like 70 mile an hour winds across a bench. Um, it wasn't there this morning. So <laughs> we are here and our hair isn't uh, laying the wrong way or something. And uh, so we're glad to be here. And uh, we enter into this Advent season, always such a, a favorite time of ours in our family um, because we really try to keep our kids focused on the true meaning of Christmas and the commercialism that grabs us all and, and the fact that um, it's all about us. Uh, can be uh, tamped down a little bit by remembering uh, what it's all about and that Jesus loved the candles, that he's the light of the world. So many of the Advent scriptures, uh, if you Google just Advent readings 2019, you'll see so many of them. There usually is an Old Testament reading about either his first or second coming. Then there's a New Testament reading, mostly about his first coming. And then you usually read from one of the letters of either Peter or Paul or John about how we live in between the, those two things. And so uh, today we read out of Isaiah 40. Thank you. And uh, so much to say about his first coming and, of course, the ministry of John the Baptist. Well, um, today I would like to begin kind of an Advent series that will take us up to um, uh, the last Sunday before Advent. This is already the second Sunday. So we have two more and then comes Christmas Eve. And uh, during this time, uh, it's always good to concentrate on something that has to deal <coughs> with the first or second coming of Jesus and what it all meant to us. And so we are studying the genealogies. Let's hear that. Yay. Yeah. So we have to take a sample for DNA. Um, no. Um, uh, yeah. So you can find your ancestry, right? Uh, find out where your 23 chromosomes come from. No, uh, what we're going to do is uh, take it in the Word of God, and we're going to look at some specific characters in the genealogy of Jesus. And the things we're going to look at there specifically are um, the women in the genealogy of Jesus. So all the women will be greatly encouraged, and all of us men will be greatly humbled to, um, <coughs> to understand that <coughs> that. When Jesus, well, when Paul says specifically that Jesus and his coming and his redeeming of us through our faith has made it all level at the cross, that there is neither male nor female, neither uh, slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile, but we're all children of God, that when Paul says that, and Peter kind of says it in a different way, that that women and men are joint heirs in Christ Jesus, that we're all equal in our inheritance before him, was scandalous to the generation in 30 AD when Jesus started his ministry. Women and children were not counted in census. Women and children were not allowed to uh, be witnesses in court. Or and, I've, and I'm sure most of you know this. Women were just... Uh, property in many ways, and they were not seen as um, equal with men. Or And so when Jesus comes and the ministry is to women and men, that he, uh, some of his best friends, uh, Mary and Martha, were women, that he went to their house. All of this was scandalous in those days because um, the fact that Jesus promoted women, that he uh, protected women. Think of the woman caught in adultery. Everybody wanted to stone. The, this was all an amazing thing. Now, the other big thing is in genealogies to us don't mean a lot. You don't come 
like when we first Sunday we came here and Sam Rockwell stood up and introduced us and who we were, he didn't say, and let me read their genealogy. Okay, Steve came from uh, Robert and Robert from Lewis and Lewis from, and I don't even know my great-grandfather's name, I can't remember it, or Carolyn came from Martin and Martin came from Martin and goes back and says all and, and gave us basically a resume of why we should be here. The resume in those days was not what you did or your talent or your skill. It's who was your pappy, okay? It mattered who, wh what lineage you came from and what you have inherited in a lineage that went way back. And so Matthew, being specifically called to be a minister to the Jews, starts his whole account of the life of Jesus in the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham to the arrival of Jesus. <clears throat> now, just a quick little aside here, because some of you may know this. Um, gosh, I hate to do this. Does anybody have the ability to get me some water? Or, wait a minute, let me speak to this rock. No, it's not. Weird. Oh, thank you so much. That would be great. I don't know what's going on. Something's stuck in my throat. Um, so, uh, in Matthew, if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew. I have some of it on the screen, and we will go there. But if you happen to have your Bibles, it says, um, it starts out that this is a genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then it goes through and has 14 uh, listings of patriarchs there. Starts with Abraham, ends with King David in verse 6. Then verse 7 goes from David um, down to Josiah. And then verse 12, uh, well, to the exile in Babylon specifically. Then verse 12 is after the exile all the way down to Jesus. Oh, thank you so much. Sorry. All right. Oh, let me, let me uh, just say this for a minute. I'm sorry why I drink my water a little break. How many people, and this is a season for, some people call it Christmas milk. Uh, we have some grandchildren. Do, do you know what that is? Eggnog, yeah. So how many people love eggnog? All right. How many people don't like eggnog? Okay, you're the agnostics. I just want you to know that. Thank you for humoring me there. Um, oh, thank you so much. All right. So... We see here, um, and then it says at the bottom in verse 17, not the bottom of genealogies, there, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. All right? Now, we know that there were more people in between there than 14, 14, and 14. All right? And so what's going on here? A lot of people will say, well, see, the Bible's inaccurate. Because it says there's just 14 between Abraham and David, 14 generations. There's 14 generations between David and the exile. And then there's 14 generations from the return of the exile to Jesus. But if you go through all of the Old Testament, you see there's many more people than that. Many more. So what is the significance of, of Matthew saying there's 14, 14, 14? Well, first of all, a couple things. is a You can shorten a genealogy. You don't have to include everybody. Because you can just include the major figures in the life of the person. You can skip generations. You can skip people. And it, that was totally permissible in those days. And it's not cheating. And it's not uh, making something up. 
In other words, if they were trying, if I was trying to describe my genealogy, I might skip a few of my characters that had very little significance uh, and maybe point out the more major ones. Then uh, the second thing is uh, that he is trying to, Matthew, show a specifically important thing. First of all, 14 is a multiple of 7, which is so important. And 7 in the Bible is significant of God and a perfection and a perfect number. This is some of the numerology in the Bible. Some people can get way out in numerology and it can become a two major thing and they miss Jesus and the whole thing. But uh, numerology is important to the Jew to see it was 14, 14, and 14 would be uh, two sets of seven, then two sets of seven, and two sets of seven. In other words, six sevens to get 14, 14, and 14, right? So we got six sevens. And so Jesus shows up and what this would mean and what Matthew's trying to say to the Jewish mind of that day, is Jesus is the seventh seven. It is seven times two in the first listing, seven times two, 14 in the second listing, seven times two in the third listing, and then Jesus comes, and he's the seventh seventh, meaning that he is the rest, as Jesus did, as God created the earth in six days, on the seventh day he rested, Jesus is our rest. Jesus is the completion. Jesus is the year of jubilee. Jesus is the setting free of slavery. Jesus is the beginning of new things. And so that's why Matthew brought out that number, not to artificially manipulate and leave out certain people to get 14, 14, and 14, but to show that Jesus is the ultimate completion of God's plan, which we've been waiting for. And all the patriarchs before listed in this list in Matthew were there to help bring this apart. And this is the lineage of Jesus. Matthew focuses on the lineage of Mary. And if you read it in Luke, he, Luke focuses on the lineage of Joseph. So they, that's also why they don't agree and some names are different in there. All right. So I just want to lay a little background for that. But what's really odd is in all of the um, all of the ancient writings we have discovered, and we have a lot of documents from this time in the early uh, first century. There are not women listed in genealogies normally. I'm sure there's some that do have, but by and large, it is not uh, a thing to do to prove who you are, to put out your resume, to show your importance, to show your lineage, the women were left out. And the fact that there is five women listed in Jesus' genealogy has to be significant and should all really wake us up to look into these five people. We could look into all the men, and uh, some of them are very famous. Abraham, David, for instance, uh, Jesse, David's dad, all those people we've read about. But these women are brought in and women of, of not, high, not high stature and not good names. Women who were known not for wonderful things. Some of them are, a couple of them are. But mostly women who would have been cast out and would have been uh, the scourge of their society of that day. And so in all this, we can see that God, in guiding Matthew to write the Gospel of Matthew, is saying to all of us, I'm not ashamed of any of you. I've had these, these uh, men and women who have been in my genealogy all had great flaws. They fell. They sinned. They were not perfect in any way. 
But I am happy to call them family because I've come to redeem all that. I come, I don't see you in your sins, your fallenness, your brokenness. I see you as my son and my daughter. And we can see that so clearly in these women who have been through real trials and abused and used. And that Jesus, in helping Matthew write this, says, I want you to include those so that by the Spirit's revelation, we can see his love and how we are all included in his family. All right, let's look at the five women. I think the next slide there. Um, I'm sorry that if that yellow is kind of light, I'll read those to you. What did the five women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy have in common? Uh, did we turn off the lights in the front, or would it get a little darker if we did? Okay. All right. What did they have in common? Thank you. They all experienced humiliation. All of these women did. So I was thinking the times I've been humiliated, we've all been through that. But these women specifically, that way, the first one's Tamar. She was accused of prostitutions. Now, there's two Tamars or Tamers. Now, all Hebrew words have the emphasis on the last syllable. So, in Hebrew, and I'm not great at Hebrew, but I think this would be pronounced Tamar at the end. We kind of would say Tamer, putting the emphasis on the first syllable. But I will try to read all these, hopefully, with the emphasis on the last syllable. So, there's another Tamar who is a, a daughter of who? David, right? David's descendants. That is not this Tamar. This one's way before uh, King David, all right? Then we have Rahab. She was a, a former prostitute. Tamar was only accused of it. Rahab, a former prostitute. Ruth, a Moabite. She turns out to be a very wonderful lady, but not in the line of Jews at all. And so is either, neither is Tamar. She's a Canaanite. Rahab is not a Jew, and Ruth is not a Jew. So you would think in this genealogy where, you're where Matthew's trying to prove that Jesus is truly Jewish and he is the Jewish Messiah we've all been waiting for, that the, the, some of the women listed here are not even Jewish. But they're brought in. So it's a sign to all of us that God came for everyone in the world, for Jew and Gentile, not just for Jew. Then we got, of course, Bathsheba, who is not mentioned by name, but is mentioned as uh, Uriah's wife. Now, she, of course, uh, was the one David had an affair with. And then, of course, we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, let's go on and let's talk. This, to, this week, I just want to talk to you about the first two. Uh, if I had been here last week and we would have done the first Sunday of Advent, we would have about, talked about Tamar. But we're going to do Tamar and Rahab together today. So here we go. Let's, let's read this. Uh, verse 1. This is a genealogy of Jesus' Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband, oh, and then I skip a whole bunch of verses there, obviously. I go from three all the way down to 16, and it ends. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Okay, let's go on. Now, let's talk about Tamar. Genesis 38 tells her story. So let me just uh, pause for a moment and kind of recap Tamar's story. If you want to study her more, it'd be a great thing to read this week, Genesis 38. So Tamar was a woman that was found as a wife in the land of Canaan, as a Canaanite, 
for Judah's oldest son. And so Judah came there and married and began to have sons. And so as any good dad would do, he goes out to find a wife for his son. So all you little boys in here know that your dad will be doing that someday for you. They will find your wife. So don't date anybody. Wait till your dad brings the woman. Okay. Now, that's not true. They're all, they're not even looking at me either. They're kind of looking at the ground, hoping that's not true. All right. Now, um, she was, so he went out and found, and so uh, Tamar married, was given in marriage to Judah's first son. But he was evil in the sight of, sight of the Lord, and it, it's pretty clear in Genesis 38 that the Lord uh, had him die at an early age because he was such an evil man. So there was a custom, and it still is today in many societies, called the law of the leveret. The leveret marriage or husband. And a leveret comes from uh, a form of the, of the word lavar, which means brother. So if your husband dies... The, his brother is supposed to take you as his wife. So your former brother-in-law now becomes your new husband and tries to help you produce a child of inheritance that will carry on the lineage of your first husband who died. It was an obligation. It was not necessarily an option, but an obligation. It wasn't, well, I don't like that guy. I don't think I want to marry my brother-in-law it was not anything anybody had to say about it. It was an expected thing to happen for a couple reasons. A woman who did not have a child was in big trouble two ways. She was humiliated in the culture of that day because that means God must have judged you and closed your womb. Secondly, to not have a child means that you will enter old age without anybody to support you. There was no social security system. There was no IRAs. There was no uh, social network that would help a single woman getting old. Your children would take care of you as you got old. And a woman could not make a good living. She could do a few businesses on the side, but she did not have the prominence to be a real major business person. Now, we see some, of, we see some exceptions to that, especially as Jesus begins to meet Aquila and Priscilla and others in the New Testament. We find women who run businesses. And Proverbs 31 talks about a woman who runs a business. But by and large, it was all kind of underground cottage businesses, and they were not prominent in the community. So if you were a woman without a child, you were in trouble. And so you were, and then secondly, uh, your husband who died deserves to have a lineage, to have someone who will inherit his piece of the land, who inherit his houses, his cattle, his sheep, his camels. And so uh, Tamar's first husband's brother takes her as his wife, but he is a jealous man, a stingy man. Uh, let me take back the word jealous, a stingy and greedy man, because he knows that if Tamar has a son, that the inheritance of the older brother that should go to him, if the, if the older brother died and didn't have a child, the second son would get all of his inheritance, all of his cattle, sheep, and camels. But so to produce a child through Tamar would lessen his inheritance. Now there would be a child who would get all of his older brother's things 
an inheritance. And so he was so greedy, he did not want to procreate with Tamar. So God saw him evil in the sight of the Lord, and he also died. And so now Judah has a third son, but Judah is a little scared, going, I don't know if I want to give her as a wife to my third son, because maybe she's like a black widow spider. All my sons keep dying who are married to her. So she begins to be looked at as the problem. Tamar, you must be killing off my sons. And in the whole community, you could hear people talking like, she must be just trying to be a gold digger or something. She's killing all these guys or something. Okay, but the scripture is very clear that God's heart is for Tamar. She's been with two men who have treated her badly, who have been evil, and she's been used and abused. Now, the third son's too young to marry her. Plus, Judah's going, I don't think I want to lose my third son. I need a son, too, for my inheritance. So he tells Tamar this, go to live with your parents and stay there for a while until my third son, whose name was Shelah, or we, it almost looks like to us, Sheila, Shelah, until he grows up, and then you, I will give you to him as a wife. It's going to take a few years. He's a little young. So Tamar goes to live with her parents, and by and by, Judah just does not follow through with his covenant of the leveret promise to produce an offspring for Tamar, and so he never gives Shelah to Tamar. He pulls back on the covenant, the promise, and even the custom of a leveret marriage where the brothers marry the wife of the other brother to help her have children and have security in her old age and the inheritance go to her and her kids. So Tamar's now pretty desperate. I don't have a kid. I'm getting old and Judah has reneged on me and he's blaming me for the death of his first two sons and won't give me the third son and what am I going to do? So Tamar makes a plan. We'll get to that in a minute. So that's the main thing, and let, we'll talk about her plan in a minute. So the name, her name means palm tree. It was arranged marriage to Ur, which is the oldest son of Judah, and not a good man. Ur dies, and the brother Onan is, is to carry on the bloodline with Tamar, the leveret marriage, but another poor husband. He's greedy. God kills both Ur and Onan, but Tamar looks like she is the problem. Okay, next slide. Now, she makes an honorable plan. She has no children, a series of bad husbands, a lousy father-in-law. How many people have a lousy? No. Okay. Uh, a lousy father-in-law. No. I hope we all, all be, we love our father-in-laws. Okay. Broken promises, and she looks like the curse. She's been wronged by three men, Ur, Onan, and Judah. But Tamar has, how do you say that word? Chutzpah. Chutzpah. Ever heard of that? We've been to, I've been to Israel about three times, and you hear that word a lot there. If you've got chutzpah, what does that mean? Anybody know? What? Feisty, uh, tenacious, uh, uh, what? Grit. Okay, all of those things. She has chutzpah. And you're, if you're really Jewish, you've got to say, well, it sounds like you're clearing your throat. Chutzpah. Oh, excuse me. Okay. Now, it's, it's uh, but... It's, it's true. The Jewish people today have to have, the whole country have to have chutzpah because they're surrounded by enemies that want to destroy them. Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, all those people 
all of those nations want Israel wiped off the map. And so today when you meet Jewish people in Israel, they have a lot of chutzpah because they have to be tenacious, strong, full of grit to survive in such a antagonistic neighborhood as the Middle East. All right. So she has that chutzpah. I am not going to die without lineage from Ur, without a child to help me in my old age, and the, and the inheritance from Ur that should rightfully come to me because it's promised in the Leveret marriage, but all Judah has not given me the third son. The second son wouldn't produce a child with me, and so she makes a plan. The plan is uh, she's going to become pregnant by Judah and give birth and continue the messianic line. Now, this seems very suspect to us that a woman would say, now I'm going to try to get my father-in-law to impregnate me, to have a child. But the leveret, from one of the research Karen and I were doing this week, the leveret law says if the sons are not available to produce you an offspring because they've died or they're um, sterile or whatever, that the father-in-law is also legally and morally and, and uh, it customarily can also become the father of uh, a child so that this woman can have some lineage and heritage and continue the name of the son who has died. So it's not quite as scandalous as it may be to us. So her plan is she knows where Judah's going. He's going up to watch his sheep being sheared. And so she, with her chutzpah, makes this plan. She dresses like a temple prostitute and sits by the side of the road into this town where Judah is going. Now Judah's wife has died at this point. He is grieved for many months, it says in Genesis 38. And so he's going up to see where his sheep are, his herds, and check out the shearing of the sheep. And on the way, he sees this woman on the side of the road, and he says, will you have sex with me? He hires her as a prostitute. But Tamar, it says in Genesis 38, she seems to have a veil over her face, kind of disguised. He can't recognize her. And uh, she says, what will you give me if I do this for you? And he said, I will send you one of my choice young goats, which was a good thing to have. That was probably a very decent and even high pay for a prostitute. So she says, but what do you give me in pledge? Because you don't have the goat with you. And you must have left the goat where you came from. And he says, okay, I will leave you my staff, my seal, and a cord. Uh, probably a cord that wraps around the neck to show who he is and his status. Judah, being one of the... 12 sons of Jacob. He's a very uh, big part of Israel. So she says, okay. And he said, then I will bring the goat to you to get my things back, my staff, my seal, and my cord, which would be very important. He would need those things to conduct business. If you were conducting business, trading sheep, cattle, camels, you need those things, uh, the seal of your ring, and all of that. All right. So he gives her those things and sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. Three months later, a guy comes to Judah and says, you know your former daughter-in-law that you sent to live with her mom and dad? She's pregnant, and she's accused of being a prostitute. And so Judah says, bring her out. We're going to stone her and kill her. Great father-in-law, right? Okay, so 
they, as Tamar is being brought to be stoned and killed by the family to wipe away this humiliation, that they have a former daughter-in-law pregnant and accused of prostitution. She says to some messenger as she's being brought along the road or something, say, says, give this rod, seal, and, and cord to Judah and ask him, do you recognize these things? And so this messenger takes him and he goes, uh-oh, those are my things. And he never sent the goat. He never followed through with a payment. And so he realizes he has really failed. And a great repentance comes over him near the end of Genesis 38. He says, this woman is more righteous than me. She did what was legally right. She was without child, and I failed to give her my third child. She actually went to the next step of the Leveret marriage covenant and had me impregnate her so that she could carry on the lineage. And I have reneged on the promise of payment. I also am now publicly humiliated by hiring a prostitute. And this woman has done everything right. I have been the one who has done things wrong. And Judah gets conviction at that point and Tamar is lifted up as a hero to this day in the Jewish culture Tamar is a hero Tamar is seen as a great woman who had chutzpah and followed all the covenants and all of the proper procedure to try to get a a descendant and that descendant was Perez and Perez then is listed in the genealogy of Jesus along with Tamar. Okay, so she makes a plan, becomes pregnant by Judah, and gives birth and continues the messianic line. If Tamar had not been present, if Tamar had not had chutzpah, there, the lineage from Abraham would have stopped right there. There would be no King David and ultimately not Jesus in the lineage that we know at all. But God and his plan wanted this woman there because she had a character trait that he wanted to be seen by all for anyone who reads the Bible to see that he was, God is, is proud of and, and wanting to include Tamar in the lineage of the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the next one. Now, the improbability of Tamar being in this genealogy. Tamar should not have been one of Jesus's grandmothers. She's a Gentile, uh, a, a listed there anyway, a woman shouldn't be listed, a discarded woman crushed by men of power, labeled as a curse, no children to continue the line of Abraham, and should have been stoned to death for her appearing as a prostitute. Next one. Tamar in Jesus' genealogy. Now, each time you push the button, one of these will light up. Uh, to those who, do, okay, so Tamar in Jesus' genealogy means to us, to those who don't fit the mold, the Lord receives and wants us. If we don't fit the mold of a religious right kind of person to be fitting into the family of Jesus, he wants us. Next thing. To all from neglectful and abusive families and relationships, God loves you and is not embarrassed by you. And he's asking all of us to be tenacious, to not live a life as a victim. But to be tenacious and believe and pursue God's plan for our lives. The statistics of women in our society today who have been sexually abused as minors is staggering. One in four, if not more. And so even among us, there are those who have been abused by men of power as Tamar was. And therefore, God's saying, 
He loves you, embraces you, and don't live in that victimhood. Get some chutzpah and live for all that God has for you. And then lastly, to those whose future is bleak and discarded, God wants you in his family and his future. I, I love the song Jackie picked today. You know, he's prepared a place for us. Uh, I am a child of God, and he wants us there. He's even gone ahead of us to prepare a place in his mansion. All right, let's go on. Let's talk a little bit about Rahab. Okay, so I'm going to read off the screen. We're going to go back to genealogy. We're going to pick it up after verse 3. It's, and we'll start in verse 4. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was, and it may be hard to say, see, Rahab. So Boaz's mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed. Who, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. All right, some pretty big names there, significant in the history of Israel. And in the midst of them is this woman, Rahab, the mother of Boaz. Okay, let's go to the next one. So let's talk a little bit about Rahab. There's all kinds of artwork done about Rahab because she was so, such a person of scandal to be, to be included in the genealogy of Jesus. All right. So let's go on. Hit the next. Oh yeah, okay. So in Joshua chapter 2 and 6 is her story of faith. Let's go on. A woman whose faith changed her life and altered her destiny. So let's talk a little bit about her story. You may know this, but uh, Joshua sent a couple spies to Jericho. He, after they cross the river, they're supposed to take the land. So they say, let's, I want two spies to go in there, check it out, check their fortresses, check the, the troops, check their weaponry. Do a reconnaissance in there and see how the best way for us to take Jericho. So these two spies went in, kind of must have been disguised as just business people or, or just travelers, went in, and they were spent the night with Rahab. Now Rahab, it, it, there's no indication, and matter of fact, farther from it, that they came there because Rahab was a known prostitute. She must have, my speculation, she must have also had a little boarding house. Okay? And she lived in the walls of Jericho. It says that her house was in the wall because these two spies, she let them down by a rope outside the wall from her, from her house. So they came there, and then there was word of somebody saw some strangers. I don't know what reconnaissance the people of Jericho were doing, but they said, we've heard there's two Israeli spies here, and we've got to find these guys and arrest them or throw them in prison or kill them so they don't go back and give a report of the weaknesses of the fortress of Jericho. So they were searching for him. And they came to Rahab, knocked on her door, and said, hey, we have a report that there were a couple spies showed up here. Somebody saw them at your door. And these guys are not part of us. They're part of the Jews that have come out of Egypt and out of captivity. And they're coming here, and we've heard that they want this land. And Rahab said, yeah, there were a couple guys here, but they left, and I bet you they're out there now. And if you hurry, you can go catch them on the road. Uh, before the gates are closed of the city. So the two spies say, thanks, Rahab, for, for giving us information about these guys. And so they tear off to go find them. She shuts the door and goes up on her roof on the wall, and these two spies are hiding under flax. That's an indication to us that Rahab was not just making her living by prostitution. She might have been weaving cloth, because what cloth is made out of flax? Linen linen. And so she might have been doing a little uh, 
making cloth or a seamstress or something to make a living. Now, a lot of people, Carol was reading some things to me about Rahab, and one scholar said, no little, she didn't, she's been really a woman of ill repute because she wanted to be a prostitute. No girl grows up saying, I want to be a prostitute. That's what I'm aspiring to. It's usually because of tragedy, pain, abuse. She was probably sold into slavery. And even speculation of one scholar is her parents probably got in debt and they paid their way out of debt by selling their daughter and sold her to what we would call today a pimp, a, a human trafficker. And that she ends up in this business, not by her choice, but by probably the poverty of her family to make a living. Same thing goes on today all over the world. And I'm sure you're up on some human trafficking issues. Now, um, so she's there. She hides these spies. And then she lets them, and they thank her greatly because they know their lives were safe because she said they weren't there and she was hiding them. And they're, they're brought, she's going to let them out to escape down the wall outside of her window, the great walls of Jericho, which we know were huge and were pretty impenetrable. And she lets them down a rope, but she says, what will you give me because I spared your life? What do you have? What can, kind of assurance can I get from, from you? Because I've heard about you Israelites. I heard God parted the Red Sea. I heard God has done miracles in the desert for you. And I know God has given you this land. I know your God will triumph. And you will get this place. And she starts to express her faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, our God, the one we worship today, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Rahab is a woman of faith because she sees God's work among the Israelites and have heard the stories of the miracles as they've come across the desert for 40 years. And so, will you preserve me because I preserved you? And they said, all right, a life for a life. It makes sense to us. So we will spare you and anybody in your home under your covering when we come to take Jericho. But you must do one thing. You must hang this red cord out the window so that we can see your house and we will not attack you. And we will tell all of our soldiers, if you see a red cord hanging out of a window, spare this woman and whoever's in her house because she saved our lives. And so they are let down by the rope, and Rahab's family is saved, and it, it was amazing. Her mother, her father, her nephews and nieces and cousins, anybody who could, she could cry in her, crowd in her house were to be saved and safe from the invasion of Israel. And I don't know how that hall all worked out when Israel walked around the walls seven times and shouted, and the walls fell down, but somehow Rahab and her family were saved in all of that. I don't know if the whole wall fell down in just one little tower with Rahab's a home in it with a red scarlet thing. I have no idea. But she was preserved, and she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. And her life is changed. That picture is supposed to show her locking the door and the two spies going up the stairs to her roof. Let's go to the next one. Now, the improbability of Rahab being in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, she's a Gentile, a Canaanite. It, you know, they're supposed to wipe out the Canaanites. They're supposed to go into the land of Canaan and take it over. Next thing. She's a woman, of course. We already talked about how women, a prostitute, the most marginalized of all women, the outcasts of all outcasts. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Uh, next point. Okay, Rahab demonstrates the power of faith. 
She's a symbol of redemption, of a life saved from a life of abuse and a life being forced to live in sin. And the power of faith is what we need to see in her. I know that many times we have faith. We say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But do we have faith that God is in control of our lives, that God is in control of this world, and Rahab should be a sign for all of us of the power of faith to redeem a situation that seems ir irredeemable, to save somebody in a falling walls that should have been crushed but lives on. And that red cord hanging out her window by many scholars and most biblical theologians for uh, for ever since we, the Bible's been put together, have said that represents the blood of Jesus. That the, the scarlet thread, you can follow that throughout Scripture, wherever scarlet shows up, it seems to be a symbol of redemption, salvation, protection, and future. And that was a symbol way back then that eventually Jesus would shed his blood to save us, redeem us, save us, uh, redeem us reconcile us, and renew our lives. Okay, next one. Symbol of redemption. God chose Rahab to demonstrate faith. The only woman of Jesus' genealogy mentioned in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, we call it the hall of faith. Not the hall of fame, but all the people who died in faith before the Savior came, still believing God's plan would come to fulfillment. And of all the five women in Jesus' genealogy, she is the only one listed. Therefore, she is important for all of us because she was a woman of faith. Uh, scripture cites Rahab as an example of faith and works in James 2.25. In the book of James, she, I'm going to read these to you on the next screen. Her words declare her faith in Joshua 2, 9 through 11. So let's go to the next screen, and we'll see these things. Hit that first thing there. Okay, in Hebrews 11, remember the only woman mentioned in the hall of faith? By faith, the prostitute, uh, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And those, uh, Rahab, her name is there. It's just in very light yellow. I'm sorry. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Next scripture from James. James 2 says, Was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions? Now, remember, James says, If you have faith, that's great. But if you have faith, show me your work. Show me something that says you have faith. And so James brings her up like, okay, people, you just can't say you have faith. There has to be fruit from your life. There has to be things you're doing that demonstrate that faith. Rahab is one of those. She just didn't think, well, God's going to take over this whole place. She actually was part of the plan by saying, I'm going to, to house these two spies. She actually did stuff in response to her faith because she knew God would conquer the land. So she set herself up to be a part of the salvation. She had chutzpah, too, to saying, how can I be in God's plan and not be a part of all these that will be wiped out? And, and so she had faith. You had to have faith that God was going to complete this, or she would have never done that. And then thirdly, uh, out of the book of in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, Rahab said, I know the Lord has given this land to you. This is her statement of faith. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and earth below. She was saying in those words, He's, he's, he's the God. He's the only living God that has everything in control. So Rahab is that. Let's go to the next screen. So Rahab's salvation at Jericho and the scarlet cord speak, cord speak to our salvation through the power of the blood of Jesus. And there's a great old um, 
pen and ink or a woodcut drawing of her lowering the spies out her window. And in her right hand, though, it's a black and white picture. It's supposed to be the red scarlet thread kind of draped over the edge of the bricks there. And there's the spies going down. They look like they're not very good at repelling, um, but they're going to get out of there. Okay. Okay. Next picture. The next slide. So Rahab and geology. What does it mean for us? No matter what a person's lifestyle or sins have done to the family, faith like Rahab can place a family in position to experience the salvation of Jesus Christ. Turning to Jesus can drape scarlet cords over your family. So think about Rahab. She was probably an embarrassment to the entire family. She did the scummiest way to stay alive that was known. The public embarrassment it brought to the whole family. But when she turned in faith, her whole family was saved. Her whole family was put under the scarlet thread. We would say her whole family, in our day, experienced the blood of Jesus and his salvation. So no matter where you've been, who you talk to this week, maybe you'll run into a Rahab this week or this season who will say, I have messed up my family. The collateral damage of all I've done has scattered my family, made my kids bitter. There is a continuation of addictions and brokenness in my family for generations that when we turn to Jesus, Rahab is a symbol that all of that can be redeemed and all of our broken family can be healed and put under the protection and salvation of Jesus Christ. I have heard story after story of people uh, who said they just, everybody, their dad was an alcoholic, their dad was a drug addict. One day their dad came back from prison or he came from a church service, a new man. Or their moms were that, broken, doing, sleeping with men, just living an atrocious, meth-infected life and turned to Jesus and came back and all of a sudden all the children and family say this person is different and they start going to church, and the whole family finds salvation. It's an awesome thing of when that happens. Okay, let's go on. So Rahab, the geology, Rahab declares that the future is with God and his people. And she says that in Joshua 6.25, but, or the scripture says, but Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now, we know this was written, uh, whether she was alive when that was written, what it's saying is that her lineage and her faith live among us to this day. All right. I think, it, what's the next slide? Oh, yeah, we'll go on here. Number six in this uh, lesson from Rahab. Rahab chose the protection of God over man-made defenses, even when the odds seem great. You'd think that wall isn't going to fall down. There's no way this army is going to take Jericho. We're too well fortified. But she took. She chose the protection of God over the defenses of her wall and the scarlet thread versus the huge stone walls. And that's, when you think of Paul, he writes, to the world we appear weak, but actually we are strong. God uses the, the strong things of this world to confound the wise and uses the weak things of this world to show the wisdom of God. And so sometimes we feel outnumbered. Sometimes we feel like there's a wall. Do we choose the wall or do we choose Jesus? Do we choose our way and the world's way to make it happen? Or do we choose following the Lord? Next one. Okay, um, let's go hit it again. God wants everyone, no matter where they have been or what they've done as part of his family. Next one. 
Faith is the key to walk with God. The shed blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses our sins and makes us righteous. Next one. The destiny of an entire family can be affected by the faith of one person. Next one. The future belongs to God and his people. And last one. It pays to trust God instead of man's ingenuity. And let's, uh, I think that's the last of this. Hit the next slide. Let me see where we're at. Uh, yeah. And now we're going to go on next week to Ruth. But I'm hoping that these women and their stories so inspire me as a man. Because I know in many ways I'm like Rahab. I could, uh, I choose ways, I could be as Rahab um, was not actually is what I'm saying. I sometimes look at the wall and say, I think I choose the wall to lean here and believe God's going to pull through with this. I don't think so. I think I got to make my own plan here. But she trusted the Lord. Tamar coming out of abused relationships, out of collateral damage of, of people that have treated you badly, that do I have the chutzpah to not be a victim, but to go on and claim the life that Jesus has for me and live in the fullness of that. And so I don't know where you see yourself in there or if you do, um, but I'm hoping that also you will know that outside these church walls, there are thousands of Tamars and Rahabs wondering if they belong anywhere. And they are not just women. They are men. And wondering if they have beyond redemption and how can they be part of God's family. And I hope that we will all be a part of taking that message to them. Anybody have any comments or, or um, interaction or statements? or Yes, sir. That's a good point. He said, did Rahab maybe didn't have any loyalty to Jericho because she was, they probably spit on her, treated her poorly, and she was uh, ostracized and uh, a woman of the night that nobody gave um, much time to or credence for. Yeah, that could be a good thing. Like, you haven't treated me very well. I'm going to choose the people of God. Maybe there's a new start for me. Yeah. Will people choose you as a church because you'll help them get a new start? Because maybe Cody has beat him up. Don't know. Good, good point. Good observation. Anything else? Yes. Uh, Bonnie and I and uh, Leon are going to leave tomorrow to go to Cutbank, Montana, which is where I was raised, and uh, it, it's it's a form of Jericho. Our enemy has built some pretty strong walls, and behind those walls, things like. Uh, the life that Rahab had to choose to survive are very, very prevalent. Suicide in that area is a huge problem. And uh, we, we would appreciate your prayer as we go forth and, and have the Heart Change Workshop there and then in a, in a month back here in Cody. Um, I always think about this story, and I'm moved because... Joshua was one of the spies that Moses sent into the land. And he and Caleb were the only ones that came back with the report saying, we can take this because the Lord is with us. And I always wondered why, why did Joshua send spies when he knew the answer? He had been there. And I believe that the Lord knew that Rahab's heart had turned toward him. And he stopped history to save this one woman and her family 
for this very reason, that he could lay that out and say to the people that we'll see in Cutbank next week and the people we'll see in, in Cody in a month and the people we see in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada two months down the road, that you matter. And that history is about bringing you into my wings and loving you and coming to find you, that if you would have faith, I will pursue you and never let you, uh, never let you fall. Good, brother. Thank you. Thank you. We do need to pray for that. Montana is supposed to be the number one state. Now, you guys are not, you're luckily in Wyoming, but Montana is the number one state for suicide in the nation. And so uh, we've got to stand with that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we're, that's right. Yes. Yeah. It was kind of a system that, like you say, you took care of your own, and at least the woman would have something from the husband or husband if she had children. That was yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the welfare system. And kids, you're supposed to take care of all of us when we get old. Not only are you going to say who your spouse is going to be, but you're going to, we're moving in with you. Okay? And the way kids are leaving late now, it may be no moving at all. You just. <laughs> The kids stay there, marry with their wives, and then you start taking care of us. Are you excited? No, they're kind of, eh. But that, that's, that's right, yeah. But it is, and it still should be. Um, we still, you know, I, my best friend took care of his mother in severe Alzheimer's in his home until she died. With, a, with uh, his wife being the daughter-in-law. Uh, did courageous work. We Some of us are not in a position to do that. Some of us can't. But um, I've seen some courageous examples of people taking care of their moms and dads in old age. And it is the welfare system that God intended. That's why children are so important. When you, That's why genealogies are important uh, in the Bible and why in the Old Testament a closed womb grieved a woman because they knew they were in trouble. And the lineage and the descendants were so important to show that God was with you and providing for you. And that's why we come to a family now. And I want to say this to every single person among us, and I don't know exactly in here who's married and who's single, but in the New Testament, it's clear in this new covenant we live, the side of the cross, that we, if you are a single person, that we as the church become your family that you now may not have the lineage or the husband or the wife or the children, but we now become your brothers, your sisters, the children of this church now become your nephews and nieces, and we are your family. And Scripture's clear if a widow has been faithful, in, uh, a widow or an old woman has been faithful in her life, that the church is to help take care of her. And so I want to I give that admonition to us as a church that we are um, the family for many that are single today, for they still face an ostracism, they still face a loneliness that hopefully will be abated and and uh, and go away in the midst of the family of God.
We have anybody else? Let's see. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. And uh, I bought really slow-burning candles so that I wouldn't have to speak too quickly. Um, but we'll move towards, uh, towards just prayer now and uh, this season of Advent. Lord Jesus, we are amazed to see your genealogy and that these five women names in the book of Matthew, how he chose, how you led him to start, uh, step out at us, Lord, and today in reviewing Tamar and Rahab, that, Lord, you, uh, your plan, your love is so immense. Your redemption is so great. You do not call us by names. You do not shame us. You do not make us pay for our sins. You uh, redeem us, love us just like we are. Take us out of, uh, in some ways, we're all prostitutes, Lord. We've all given our hearts to other things besides you in our life. And even this day, Lord, we fight idols in our lives. We fight um, other uh, affections besides you. And Lord, um, it's just amazing how much you love us. And may uh, we turn to you now in repentance and saying, Jesus, thank you for taking us back and cleansing us and healing us. And Lord, I thank you for the power of a family to be saved. For Lord, I know many in here pray for unsaved children or moms and dads or husbands or wives or brothers or sisters. Lord, whatever that we have come to Jesus, but they're still outside. We ask, Lord, in faith of Rahab that we throw the scarlet cord of Jesus over our family, that they will come to know you and come into a relationship with you. And Lord, this holiday season, as we see many of them and visit with them, may we um, somehow be an invitation for them to come. May our words, may we not, may we be people of faith in what we speak to those we will eat dinner with at Christmas or during this holiday. And may um, you help us uh, find the, the other Rahabs and Tamars. And Lord, uh, for those of us in this room who have been abused uh, as Tamar was, sexually uh, broken promises, uh, been um, uh, just discarded and forgotten, that Jesus, we thank you that you haven't forgotten us, that you have a plan for us. And Lord, if there's any chutzpah that we need to express, if we need to pick up our mat and walk, if we need to now participate in the plan you have for us, show us what that is, Lord, not in presumption, but in faith. And Lord, march towards the future and the glory you have for us. We thank you, Lord, and I pray that this Church would be a welcoming place for Tamars and Rahabs, whether men or women, and that they will find health here. They will find no shame here. They will find love and acceptance and hope and a future. And where they may lack chutzpah, that will come alongside them and lift up their arms and contribute to their strength, that they may walk into the fullness of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Bless our children this Christmas season. May they see Jesus more than they see Santa. May they see you, Lord, as the greatest gift and promise from the Father. We love you, Lord. Keep our homes holy this season. And may they be places of your dwelling. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.